Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver, and I'm Sean, a.k.a. Sean, and we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at Preacher number one, The Time of the Preacher, written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon. And I cover by Glenn Fabry. Yep. Colors by Matt Hollingsworth. All right. As far as I know, this art team is going to do damn near every issue of Preacher. Yep, Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, Glenn Fabry, and Matt Hollingsworth are all around for pretty much the entire run. There might be an, art, an issue with a fill-in artist somewhere in the 75 issues of Preacher. We are going to talk but. about some, some published side stories as well. Yes, and I'm pretty sure the, the Saint of Killers miniseries that will fall under our purview is not by Steve Dillon. Okay. So Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon, at this, by the time they started this series, had already worked together on a run of Hellblazer. Okay. Do you want to jump in, or do you have any background stuff that you want to mention? I will say that the title of this issue is Time of the Preacher. Time of the Preacher is a song from Willie Nelson's 1975 concept album, Red-Headed Stranger, and the song is heard playing in the diner in the very first scene. Nice. I figured it was from a song. I knew I didn't know what that song was, so... I didn't do any research. The cover of this issue has a sort of evil-looking Jesse watching with evil glee as his church burns down, yeah, which very, is pretty misleading. A very devilish-looking Jesse on the cover of the issue. That And that also happens to be the cover of the trade paperback edition, uh, the latest trade paperback edition. And probably yeah. the original trade paperback edition too, I would imagine. Yeah, and that's not that's not actually accurate when we see it when we see the church destroyed in the issue. Spoiler warning. Yeah, Jesse's not particularly thrilled with the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 that's his church, so he he shouldn't be. Yeah, I, I think if they spoil it with the cover, we can also spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> also, this podcast is just spoilers. <laughs> that's true. We sit down to spoil the things in order. I suppose we should call it out if we spoil, like, Mass Effect or something. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. The complete synopsis. Yeah. Okay, so we open in the Five Aces Diner, somewhere in Texas, as and our heroes discuss their quest and the events that brought them together over a meal. And their quest is, apparently, to find God. Right, so on the first page we meet our three main characters. We've got Preacher Jesse Custer, Irish Vampire Cassidy, and Jesse's gun-toting ex-girlfriend, Tulip O'Hare. Right, and we don't quite know that... Cassidy's a vampire yet, although... It's gonna be a little while before they reveal it. I think in the first issue we just get hints. Yeah, they start dropping hints, pretty aggressive hints, and pretty early on. I think later in this issue, there's a part where he hides under a tarp and instructs them not to move it. Yeah. <laughs> as long as the sun is up, which is a pretty big hint. Yeah, yeah, and they kind of think, that's weird, but they don't exactly come to the conclusion of what it implies. Right on the first page, Cassidy asks if this is where Jesse is going to start looking for him, introducing the idea of the quest right away. And Jesse replies, Texas is as good a place as any. Yeah, and right away you can see one of the big strengths of Steve Dillon's artwork, which is that he draws very distinct and expressive faces. Yeah. Um, the characters all have their own distinct looks. He knows what all his characters' faces look like. They're not just... You know, they're not just generic, differentiated by the hair and the costumes. 
Yeah, that said, these three do have fairly distinctive costumes, at least at the beginning. Yeah, that's true. That's something I guess we can talk about a little more in issue two with regard to the way that Jesse Custer dresses. Check out also the center panel at the bottom of this page where you can get basically Tulip's whole attitude on the character of Cassidy in one facial expression. You think that's just her, like, dismissive face? Yeah. Cassidy doesn't seem to be taking their mission very seriously. He says he remembers a guy who'd found God, but that guy was crazy. The characters joke a little bit between them. We can see that they're already starting to form a rapport, that they're sort of enjoying each other's company, with the exception that Tulip doesn't seem to like Cassidy very much. Right. Yeah. Also, when they order their food, Cassidy doesn't order anything, which... So we're on page two now (laughs) of the comic book, and there's already a pretty big hint. Yeah. I'll point this out, too, on the first page, that there is a... A leaky ketchup bottle foregrounded in the image. Kind of implying that this is going to be a bloody story, even from the beginning. Oh, nice. Yeah, I had never uh, picked that out before. But that's that's very good. So they're talking about where to find God. And Jesse says, he sure as hell won't find him in the church. Right. And Tulip, she mentions Genesis here. Which we won't fully find out what Genesis is uh, in this issue. But we do get the rough strokes of it. She also mentioned that she was surprised to find Jesse had become a preacher. And he says he's keeping his reasons for being a preacher to himself for now. Yeah, and Jesse is surprised to discover that Tulip has become a vegetarian as a waitress arrives and Tulip orders chicken salad, hold the chicken. Oh, right, yeah. Cassidy mocks her vegetarianism, joking that he's got a great quiche recipe, ending with throwing away the quiche and getting a steak. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like him. Tulip wants to get straight what got them, the three of them to this point, especially how Jesse became a preacher and why he ran out on her five years ago. We're going to get answers on that in quite a few issues. But for now, we can see that there's some distance that's cropped up between Jesse and Tulip on account of their past and on account of the time they've spent apart. He skips the question about why he ran out five years ago. He says he didn't have a choice in becoming a preacher, but... I didn't know I was going to end up responsible for the spiritual guidance of a whole Texas town. And Cassidy replies, And for killing the lot of them. Which leads into our first flashback. Right. So, Jesse is dressed like a preacher. I suppose he was dressed like a a preacher in the frame story as well, but he's looking much more clean-cut and conservative here. Yeah. A cleaned-up-looking Jesse surprises the locals in Anvil, Texas by entering the bar and ordering a beer. Yeah, and he proceeds to basically pick a fight with the whole town. Yeah, he picks a fight with the bartender about the drinks being watered, and he rants to the crowd that he hears every secret in town and starts revealing them. <laughs> right. This is a lot of Garth Ennis's signature dialogue mm-hmm. here. I mean, he's Jesse is quite a wise ass, and this is just a pleasure to read, especially mixed with mixed with the facial expressions. You know, there's not a lot of out-and-out action in this sequence, at least not until you turn the page. Right. But it's still it's still a pleasure to read just because of the combination of the facial expressions and the and the sharp dialogue. Right. And I wanna I wanna give Garth Ennis credit here for including a line explaining why Jesse hears all the local secrets. I overhear it or someone tells me in the strictest confidence, or I read the paper and put two and two together. When I first read this scene I wondered if it had been conceived with the idea that he took confession, which, as a Baptist preacher in Texas, he wouldn't. Oh, is that... So it's, so it's good that they explain why he has access to all this information. 
The most important people that he reveals the sins of here are a, a couple of brothers named Pat and Terry Morrow, who apparently committed a rape and bribed a judge to get away with it. Yeah, and they start giving him a beating. Yeah, beginning by cracking a pool cue over his head. Despite Jesse's complaints about the beer, the bartender steps in to save his ass. He wasn't so bad for a beer water and motherfucker. Yeah, so Jesse's been complaining that the townsfolk think showing up on Sunday excuses a week of vile behavior, and it doesn't work that way. Right. So, meanwhile, in heaven, and yeah. this is this is still in flashback. I yeah, think. this is still in flashback. Jesse points out that this is probably happening at right about the same time, but that he doesn't even know how this happened. So we're getting a little information that the main characters don't have. Yeah, So, and we know that it's heaven, because not only does it look kind of otherworldly and bizarre, but a narration box kindly informs us, heaven. So we see three angels, and they're discussing the fact that Something called Genesis has escaped. So these angels look just like humans, except that they've got white hair and they're wearing kind of blue smocks. Yeah, although presumably there are also humans who have white hair and blue smocks. Yeah, I mean, so you could. There's nothing stopping you. Yeah. This is kind of an interesting design for heaven, but we're not going to spend a lot of time here. We've got the fluffy clouds, but above that is sort of a space station looking thing made of geodesic pipes and domes. Right. And there's a great big hole blasted in it. We also get introduced to the idea that there are multiple classes of angels, because one of these angels says the last thing we need now is for the Seraphie to find out. And then on the next page, we see a really cool-looking design of the Seraphie, who do not look so human. Yeah. So these, uh, these three are Pilo, Fiore, and DeBlanc. Two of them are going to be recurring characters. One of them not so much. And they are the Adephi. Right, and they do not want anyone to find out that something just blasted its way out of heaven, because they are afraid the Seraphi, a higher order of angels, will punish them. Yeah. But it's a little too late for that, because the Seraphi is right behind them. Yeah, when we, when we see one of these Seraphim, he has big, magnificent wings, and is sort of in peak physical shape, and also has these inhuman eyes with no pupils and dark lines surrounding them. Yes, and the Seraphi that he is carrying is even more distinctive. His head's been ripped off. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a memorable look. He's pretty pissed. He says that this Genesis creature, during its escape, attacked and killed his Seraphi brother. A comet with the face of an infant is the way he describes it. Right, so he's starting to tell us a little bit about, about Genesis, and we also get the first implications on this page that God is gone. Yeah, so the Seraphi reminds them that he is in charge, and after he leaves, one of the Adephi says, they were only left in charge. And that's all the authority they need, another replies. Uh, the angels talk amongst themselves about what Genesis wants. It turns out that it doesn't have a will of its own. It wants a soul. It wants to bond with a fully developed consciousness. So it'll be looking for a human to bond with. And they really don't want Genesis to develop full sentience. So they have to send someone after it. Someone who never fails and never stops. And they pick this fat guy. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> well, uh, no, they pick, uh, they pick this fat guy... Who I was under the impression was Fiore, but that one doesn't make any sense. It's actually DeBlanc orders Pilo to go to Boot Hill and wake the saint of killers. Ah, uh, yes, okay. And he says, me? And then we're back in the diner. 
Yeah, Cassidy interrupts the story because this is where Tulip and he come in. And he asks what Tulip was doing there when, when they ran into each other. She's reluctant to answer. And the reason she's reluctant is that she was trying to kill a dude. Yeah, so this is Dallas. I think we're going to find out a little later. And she's waiting outside a bar for three men. And when they come out and get into a car, she says to herself, Oh shit, I've really got to do this. Yeah, and I think this might be the only time in the entire series that we see Tulip fail to kill somebody. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that she's she's really good good at at shooting guns, even though Jesse has said that she hates guns. But, yeah, she approaches the car. One guy immediately makes a pass at her. She gets pretty pissed off. There's a a large, angry Tulip face taking up about a quarter page here. Yeah. Would we call that a pass, or is that more of just just a lewd comment? Eh, all right, fair enough. Uh, I mean, he um, he asks for her hand in marriage, but uh, I think he's being facetious. <laughs> so she pulls her gun and starts shooting, but she hits the wrong guy, blowing his jaw off. Yeah, it's pretty gory. This is a violent comic book. Yeah, this is sick shit. Why are you making me read this? Okay, that's how it happened. <laughs> um, actually, you wanted to mention something. Since we're talking about the content standards, we might want to mention to... This is definitely not the DCU. Yeah, that's right. And although we've already seen in our coverage of Hellblazer and Sandman things that you probably couldn't show in a general audience's DC comic, this is is not set in the DC universe like like those books are. This is this entirely is, Garth Ennis's imagined world. Right. It's it's its own world and uh, and I think the reason for that is just that it's it has its own cosmology which plays so heavily into the story. Yeah. Sandman and Hellblazer sort of incidentally take place in the DCU. There's not a lot of overt crossover, but there is from time to time indication that it's the same universe as some of the other superhero characters. This right. is definitely not the same universe at all. Yeah. After shooting the wrong guy's jaw off, Tulip panics and runs away, and the boss man orders the thug to go out after her. You think that was supposed to be a hit? Yeah. <laughs> so Cassidy interjects again and says, Right, let's give it a bit of class and get the Irish into it. There I was, minding my own business. As Tulip runs around a corner, she comes across Cassidy in a pickup truck. She demands the truck at gunpoint, to which he says, Shant. <laughs> that is like one of my favorite lines of this issue. But uh, he does—he just, just smiles charmingly and says "shant." But he does allow her to get in the truck. And as they Awful drive off, of him. as they drive off, goons run around the corner and shoot at them. One of them hits Cassidy in the temple to no effect. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. You've brightened up an otherwise boring evening, love. And Tulip and Cassidy introduce themselves to each other, and we're back in the five aces. Yeah, uh, and she says, I didn't know you got hit. And he says, just once. That one's kind of hard to believe. He's just covered with blood in the panel where he got hit. And then we hear that Tulip didn't even know that it happened. Well, it's the side that's away from her. That's true. I mean, yeah, actually, that's probably the way it's intended to be read. Because we can see, yeah, because we can see in this panel here that he's completely clean on the other side of his face. Right. Okay, so now we come to another flashback. Yeah, Cassidy brings up the Saint of Killers. And we cut to Pilo at Boot Hill. Yeah. Pilo wakes up the Saint of Killers, who is hidden in a casket with a snake on top, uh, surrounded by a massive pile of skulls. This is just a really cool place to have hidden a 
Yeah, it is pretty wicked looking, isn't it? But he gets a bullet for his trouble. Yeah, as soon as he opens the coffin, a hand reaches out with a pistol and blows his brains out. Force of habit. The Saint of Killers rises up out of the coffin as Pilo, dying but not quite dead, uh, complains about it. Superhuman power here. Yeah. And he tells the Saint of Killers that he's needed once again. The order is to kill Genesis, and if it is joined with a mortal man, to kill him too. And then Pilo complains about the fact that he's dying. He says, I never even thought about sinning. I did everything I was told, and I never complained. And now it ends here in this black pit in the ground with my brains blown out? What do you call that, eh? What do you call that? The saint replies, good start. He's he's a mean fella. Yeah. So back in the Five Aces, Jesse finally gets around to what happened in his church. He explains that because of the incident in the bar, the whole town turned out for church the next morning, if only to see what was going to happen next. Yep. And Tulip says, just out of interest, what would your sermon have been about? Jesse replies, forgiveness. So Jesse begins his sermon hesitantly, and suddenly, this burning comet flies in through the back wall of the church and flies right into Jesse. And we see that once again it has the face of an infant, and Jesse starts to freak out and uh, people wonder what the fuck he's trying to say yep and just then genesis blows them all away yeah the church explodes and all the people inside are incinerated and we get this full page spread of jesse superimposed over this half angel half demonic creature yeah and this panel of genesis and jesse sort of merged looks really fucking awesome (laughs) so i want to say i'm a little surprised here when I first read this, I expected, honestly, that he was going to have a lot bigger hand in, you know, the deaths of all of the parishioners in Anvil. Because I knew that was a, a launching point for the series. And I had heard a couple of versions of how it happened, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I know in the TV series, we're going to spoil that a little bit, even though yeah, it's pretty different. Yeah, the entire first season of the TV series covers roughly the same events as this first issue of the comic book. There's a few things that we don't find out until later in the series in flashback that are also covered on the TV show. And um, and the entire Saint of Killers miniseries is one of those things. But generally speaking, the events of the, of the first season of the show begin where this issue begins and end where this issue ends. So I know basically in the show there's an attempt to talk to God by a radio that the angels have brought with them. And they find that there's nobody there, and it causes basically a mass suicide? No, it's not exactly... I I, I mean, people respond in different ways. Some folks in Anvil do commit suicide, but what actually destroys the town and kills most of the people is this freak accident involving a waste processing plant. Okay. So... So the... The ship fumes explode massively and take out the whole town? Yeah, pretty much. But it it happens as a result of Jesse having this idea to bring in this radio and talk to God during the sermon. Yeah, I I don't remember exactly how it plays out, but what what the parishioners witness leads to someone being derelict in their duties. It's sort of like the plane crash at the end of season two of Breaking Bad. (laughs) Oh, okay. And I had sort of also heard the rumor that Jesse had this big angry sermon and ended with inadvertently using the word to tell them all, go fuck yourselves. 
which apparently is not what happens at all. No, that so, doesn't happen. So here, I mean, it's really a coincidence that Genesis shows up in the middle of church and that everybody is there. Jesse kind of takes responsibility because they all showed up to see him be a drunken fool, but yeah, it's really not his fault. Yeah, it's really just caused by, and I'm not even sure it's consciously caused by Genesis, so much as it's just a side effect of Genesis's power. Yeah, so as the as the inciting event for the whole series, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that Jesse's kind of innocent of what happened. There's so little free will involved in this tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the comic book, uh, Tulip is a little ways away, driving in Cassidy's pickup, and sees the explosion of the church. Yeah, and they have a little bit of a of a squabble here. Um, she wants to go check it out. He wants to be left alone under his tarp. Yeah, so at this point, Cassidy is in the back of the pickup under a tarp for reasons that Tulip doesn't fully understand yet. She ignores his order not to drive his truck and takes off for the explosion in the pickup. Right. Here we get a little scene between Cassidy and Tulip, where as she climbs out of the truck and begins to head for the wrecked church, Cassidy is sort of endeavoring to seem like he doesn't care, but he does warn her that she'd better take her gun. Oh, right. Yeah, that does happen. So, I think it's going to be a bit of a plot point later on that Cassidy sort of has an interest in Tulip, and his feeling that, but not wanting to come out and say it, is set up really early on. Yeah, we're already getting the foundations of a love triangle starting to form, even in issue number one. Right. So she goes into the wrecked church. And here is where she's reunited with Jesse. Jesse fucking Custer? And... Upon seeing him in the rubble, we cut back to the diner. Cassidy wants a cigarette. Jesse says the machine's empty. He'll go find a store or something. Yeah, Jesse volunteers to go get the cigarettes, which Cassidy is going to point out. He doesn't seem to want to be alone with Tulip right now. He specifically goes to get the cigarettes so that Cassidy doesn't leave the two of them alone. Yeah, Tulip has a lot of questions for Jesse, and he is doing his best to avoid having to answer them. But... Leaving for the cigarettes does give him the opportunity to be alone with someone else. This is a character we're going to see again. This is another major presence in the series. And it's a, a man a, dressed as a cowboy who calls him Pilgrim. Well, Pilgrim, couldn't help but notice you ain't mentioned me yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just realized that my John Wayne impression is literally my Wolverine impression. <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think mine's quite that bad, but we're not going to get a chance to find out in this episode. I don't, I don't think I'm going to put that out there. Just Better yet. part of valor, right? But um, but yeah, this is literally John Wayne. Yeah, it's not it's not just a cowboy, you know, written as sort of a pastiche of John Wayne. We don't find out anything more about it right now than that it's a cowboy who calls him Pilgrim, but. Yeah, but the portrayal of John Wayne is that, as far as I have seen so far in this series, we never see his face. Right. He's always seen from the back or in shadows, and apparently Jesse's the only one who can see or hear him. Yeah, exactly. This brings us to another flashback and the entrance of Sheriff Hugo Root. Yeah, it's a little hard to tell this is a flashback. It could equally have been a cutaway from the Five Aces, but yeah, this is happening some days before the diner scene. And Hugo Root is not a pleasant character. No, he's surveying the wrecked Anvil Church along with his deputy, Kenny. Um, and he's already got an idea about how it happened, which is a pretty dumb idea. <laughs> yeah, he is convinced that it is Martian N-words. 
he believes the Area 51 aliens are responsible and the government is covering it up. So he calls in a chopper and every man he can get. Yeah, Hugo Root is not only an awful person, but also deeply paranoid and incompetent. And it's really just a damning indication for the entire town that this man has been left to be sheriff for as long as he has. Yeah, and we'll can... see a lot more of that in the um, in the arse face one shot. Oh yeah, okay. So he's sort of the boss of his little world, and he's obviously not comfortable with things that are bigger than his little world. Genesis being one of those things, but he's also going to interact with the FBI in the investigation of this crime really soon. Right. I mean, he did call in the FBI, and he seems to have no hard feelings about that. Yeah, somebody asks him, did he call in the FBI, and he says, you know it! So, all right. So he's not that resentful of them. But he does suspect them of being complicit somehow. Yep. The government in working in cahoots with the Martian N-words. Yeah. Does Root have a bigger role in the TV series? He, well, he does, because all, every citizen of Anvil has a has a bigger role in the TV series. Because, because it's a know, full season before we get to the church explosion. Exactly. And Sheriff Root is one of the few characters who they actually made nicer oh, yeah? in the TV series than he is. I mean, you, you can't really get much nastier than this character's portrayal in the comic mm-hmm. books. In the TV show, he's... If I remember correctly, he's sort of a negligent father who has trouble communicating with his son and is obviously deeply disappointed in him. Sorry, I uh, we're talking about Arseface here, but he hasn't actually been introduced yet, so we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, in the TV show, he's still portrayed as a caring father in his way, okay, and not as the total abusive psycho that we yeah. see in the comic book version. All right, so meanwhile at the church, Cassidy and Tulip are arguing what to do with the unconscious Jesse. Uh, Cassidy doesn't want to help because he gets nothing out of either bringing Jesse to the hospital or helping to rekindle Jesse and Tulip's romance. And just then, Jesse sits up with a start and a scream. And a screaming headache. And he says, I don't know, it's, I've got this thing in my mind, like I've suddenly remembered all this shit. Except it's not memories, it's been shoved in my head from outside. Christ, it hurts. It's telling me... And uh, Cassidy interjects, Let me guess, it's God, and he says women are all whores, and he wants you to punish them. Jesse sees an angel man and a devil woman who fell in love and had a hybrid child. A massive secret behind it all. But whatever it tells me, whatever it says, it sounds like... It sounds like the word of God. Yeah, so uh, this isn't the complete story behind Genesis quite yet, but it's Jesse's limited understanding of it, and it's pretty damn close. Also, this uh, full page of Jesse's face contrasted with the angel and demon is just really great art. Yeah, this is a really nice page, and it's a very graphic angel-demon sex scene. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not pornographic, but it's graphic. Right. Cassidy thinks Jesse's crazy. Yeah, and he's just about to take his leave of these folks. Especially since he says he smells cops. And right on cue, the police arrive. The chopper is overhead and several cop cars pull up. Now by chopper, that's a helicopter. A helicopter. There's not a flying motorcycle overhead. Sirius (laughs) Black is not here to arrest them. (laughs) Okay, just making sure. 
The police order the trio to freeze, but Jesse says, drop the guns, all of you. Let us go. And when he says it, his eyes turn red and so does his speech bubble. Yeah, so this is the word of God. It's a power that we're going to see a lot in the course of this series. And when he uses the word, the text appears in red. This is a pretty cool visual way of representing it, but it's also a pretty obvious reference to certain Bibles. A lot of Bibles are printed with the word of God in red text. Oh, you know, I hadn't picked up on that, but that is clever. So he, uh, he gives them this instruction, and we see every single cop drop their gun, including the guy in the helicopter, and it bonks the head of a hapless deputy uh, as he accidentally drops it. Yeah. Cassidy gives Jesse and Tulip a ride out of there. And Cassidy says, Aye, all right. I could do with some crazy shit in my life. Now, before the cops can regroup, pick up their guns, and get on their trail, a stranger appears coming from the other direction. And this is not John Wayne. But it is a cowboy. Yep, this is the Saint of Killers. Root says, Figure you got yourself some guns and them belts, boy. And the Saint of Killers, who we now see... I think this is the first time we're seeing his face, right? Yeah. So we see his face for the first time, and he is an ugly bitch. Yeah. And he says, Yeah, but you don't look to me like the man who will take him. And Jesse says, Bang. And that closes out the issue. So, uh, that was a double-sized issue. And in spite of how many, like, questions and hooks it, it's leaving for the future, it does actually a really good job of introducing us to many major players in this story. Yeah, that's a really fast-paced issue, but it's remarkably dense with plots and, and, and character hooks. So we haven't had the opportunity yet on this podcast much to talk about decompression. Mm -hmm. But compared to Sandman and Hellblazer, Preacher is much more decompressed. Nonetheless. Yeah, this this is a a cinematic road movie spread over 66 issues. Yeah. Nonetheless, we we get a lot of very crafty introduction of different elements in this first issue. Yeah, and I gotta give Ennis credit for the fact that just, you know, a page or a half page of... Jesse, Cassidy, and Tulip chatting gives us a lot about the way that those characters feel about each other and interact with each other. Yeah, it's it's true. Um, more so than like, more so than I even understood the first time reading it. Mm-hmm. Because once you've read the entire series, you understand that there are hints being dropped here that don't pay off until much later. Right. This issue is also it's a great introduction to Garth Ennis's dialogue and Steve Dillon's art, both of which are. Fucking fantastic. Uh, Dylan's art is super sharp. I'm a fan. I mean, there's almost like a spectrum in comic book art between the really artistically abstract versus the totally utilitarian. Mm -hmm. Steve Dylan's art is completely sharp. It's always totally clear what's going on. And it's also fucking beautiful. Yeah, that's right. And he can draw very... You know, mundane stuff like uh, like the face of some random old codger and the waitress in the diner. Mm-hmm. But he can also draw really fantastical stuff like angels and demons and Genesis and you know miraculous things going on. Uh, and it, and and his art style really works for both. Yeah, I think that really helps ground the whole series. The way the fantastical things that we're going to see look real and they look. They seem to fit with everything else. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the TV version of Preacher. Okay. 
which is brand new. I believe it's between its first and second seasons right now. Mm-hmm. And it does an okay job of... It does a pretty good job of introducing a lot of the characters, although some of the characters are made a bit meaner. Okay. Um, the Adephi yep. angels are are much more are much more ruthless. Yeah. So of. the TV series sees the Adephi actually go into Anvil to try to track down Genesis and take it from Jesse in the yeah. first season, right? Yeah, and they're ultimately fairly sympathetic characters, but they are. Ruthless and tough, mm-hmm. not the sort of hapless guys in blue smocks that we get in this comic book. I think the TV show gets Cassidy just right. Mm-hmm. And although Tulip O'Hare in the TV show is a fascinating character and a lot of fun to watch, she is just not Tulip O'Hare from the comic book. They're just two different in characters. In the first episode, she's like making a bazooka from household objects to kill some gangsters who are chasing her. Yeah. Yeah, and the character here who obviously hesitates to kill at all is something completely different. Right. You know, one of the things... I don't want to jump ahead and spoil too much mm-hmm. of the story, but one of the things she likes best about Jesse, we come to find, is his insistence on being a good guy. Mm-hmm. Whereas TV show Tulip says, there are no good guys or bad guys, there's just guys. And that is... Something that, that, to me, really differentiates her from, from the tulip that I know from the comics. Yeah, and also, not to, again, not to spoil too much of the series, we're going to get to the point where Tulip is a genuine gun-toting badass, but she doesn't quite have the moral grounding that allows her to be that yet, and so she isn't really that yet at this point in the story. I think that's a good way of putting it. So, yeah, this is a really fun issue, and we're in for a lot more fun with Preacher. It's an impossible series to put down, a really easy series to binge, and uh, really excited that we're covering it. Yeah, me too. Okay, so now it's time for a segment I call, Hey Sean, Read This, in which I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. Okay. (laughs) This week I've got Savage Things number two. Oh boy. Yep, so Sean's going to read that and we'll be right back. Okay, here goes. Okay, so Savage Things number two, written by Justin Jordan, art by Ibrahim Mustafa, with a cover by John Paul Leon. Yeah. Uh, so, what did you think of it? I didn't enjoy that very much, and now I'm definitely not going to be into Savage Things. <laughs> I, I think that's a pretty fair response. I did think it was worth looking at again, just to, just because. This sort of acts as the second half of the first issue. Yeah, we talked about it being a double issue last week. And I gotta say, if the action cold open had been included, it would probably have made a better impression. I think it still wouldn't be, like, my cup of tea, but I think it would have been a more complete launch for the series. Yeah, and to, to give a little background here, Savage Things number two came out only one week after Savage Things number one. So when, okay. when we talked about Savage Things number one, we, we talked about how, you know, it might have done better with a double length number one. And I said I wasn't sure it was worth it to DC mm-hmm. to give it that chance. But it, it looks like they sort of did by, by deciding to release, you know, two issues in two weeks. That's a really strange way of, you know, effectively putting out a double-sized first issue. Yeah, I mean, it still requires that second 
that second vote of engagement, that decision to go go pursue this story again. Right. The, the decision to purchase a second time, I mean. But it does allow them to get off the ground a little faster. Right. I don't, I don't know what the logistics are as to how much more difficult it is to publish and sell a double. Well, and they make a little more money off of it this way than they would if it was a double issue. You okay. Know, instead of, you know, they probably wouldn't charge $8 for a double-sized issue. Do you know if this is intended to launch a full ongoing or if this is going to be a limited run? I do not know that right now. But in the second issue, we get uh, a little more background. The sociopaths who were being collected, they actually are a government organization, we find out for sure. Mm-hmm. It turns and out that our main guy, Abel, was protecting this other kid, Kane, during the uh, during the training. Yeah. Anyway, when public opinion, or I guess the, there never was any public opinion because they're so secret, but when the government sort of, you know turned against them. They were deemed to be an embarrassment, which seems to imply that somebody knew about them. Right. Uh, Some foreign power or somebody back in the States. But instead of just giving them their money and letting them go home, the government tried to kill them all, and so now they're going to wreak bloody revenge uh, against the government by basically terrorist acts in this major city. Is this New York City? Do we know? I don't know. And I said I just said it was the States, but I'm not actually sure that it's not supposed to be in the UK. Hmm. Well, in any case, so so, so oh, get... yeah, and, and so that this this gang of of survivors from the the incident that was supposed to liquidate Black Forest are led by Kane, Abel's old buddy, right? And you know, so we finally get a little more exposition here that the first issue could have used, but when we do, it's just sort of action movie cliche stuff. You think and, so? And everything that was really mysterious in the first issue becomes sort of, oh, I've seen this before. I guess I had seen it before. It, imme- it immediately reminded me of an episode of Ghost in the Shell called Night Cruise, in which they, the main characters are Japanese police, and they're dealing with this guy who's a leftover American soldier from a unit that does exactly what we see in this comic book. You know, tortures and kills civilians is a form of psyops. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, because Ghost in the Shell is a movie, not a TV show, and certainly not a live-action movie. (laughs) (laughs) Harsh, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's just, those are just things that never happened. Ghost in the Shell standalone complex is a TV series? Never happened. Oh, I didn't know that you had an opinion on that one. <laughs> I, it might be good. I have never watched it. It doesn't follow the the original manga, though, does it? No. It's okay. a new story. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it was nice to see some action. Abel's abilities are nothing all that special. He Batmans away from the police when they're surrounding the building and gets into the, the, the hospital that's been taken over by terrorists. And then he shoots a hostage in the leg to force the guy who's holding him to drop him so that he can get close to the guy. Yeah, there is one cool part here in this issue that I really did enjoy. There's an interrogation room scene. And interrogation room scenes are really popular in comics right now. Yeah. Maybe they always have been, but this is a pretty good variation on the interrogation room scene because Abel just slips his cuffs and says, Heh, I have a question. When you came in here with me, unarmed, 
did you think you were safe? And then he starts, like, vaulting over the table, like, lunging at this, uh, at the woman who brought him in. And she, without missing a beat, grabs a gun from under the table and pushes her chair back with her foot while taking aim at him and says, No, did you? <laughs> and that's actually pretty fucking sweet. Yeah, and then, and then right after that, she basically tells him, Hey, there's no reason for us to let you walk out of this room if you don't help us. Yeah. You're just a you're just a sociopath. You're just a criminal. We don't need you, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like that that ties in again with like I said, the idea was the most interesting thing about it last week. The idea also that they're completely expendable because they're just a bunch of psychopaths. Yeah, but to, that's to, what Suicide Squad should be about when a good movie is made about. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but to finish the thought, like maybe the reason that interrogation scenes are so popular and are such a cliche is that they're, you know, a good kind of crutch that lets you get some really good quality writing in mm. pretty well, they're easily. A, they're a situation that everybody knows so well that you can easily work in on a surprise or two. We all know the tropes of the interrogation scene. Yeah, so yeah, so I guess it's easy to make twists. It's also really easy to get uh, to get some good dialogue going between between people who are on opposite sides. Yeah, people who shouldn't normally sit down for a conversation. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about the art for just a minute. Okay. Well, the art is fine, I guess. There were a couple of layouts in this book that are just bad. It is difficult. Well, first of all, the cover is just bad. Yeah, the cover's not great, and again, I mean, I, I, I hate to hammer on this, but last time the guy on the cover didn't look like Abel. This time, Abel may be on that cover somewhere, but he's not prominent. Agent Kira is really the only person who you can say is the central focus of the cover. Yeah, this, this cover is just sort of a mess of different people and scenes and the holodeck for some reason. And... <laughs> Um, I didn't see that until just now. <laughs> a lot of these scenes never really happened, and a lot of these characters, we don't know who they're supposed to be. In the book itself, the the art is crisp and good to and nice to look at, but the action is just very confusing, and it's hard to tell what's going on. Yeah, I think we both noticed the panel where Abel's forward motion was reversed between um, successive panels. And, and we both noticed there's a, there's a panel where that we're seeing the bad guys through a bullet hole they've just put in a guy's head. And a guy who used to be standing right next to that guy is now standing across from him looking at him so that his reaction shot can be in the panel. Yeah, that's really clumsy. Also, it, it just when the terrorists take over this hospital, two of them take over the hospital. Is it really two? I we thought can, it was supposed to be more. We can see in a number of places that it's at least two. Okay. And then Abel goes in and takes out one of them, and mission completed. Oh. <laughs> we never see what happened to the other one. I mean, I think we see him a little later here preparing to launch another terrorist attack, but we don't know how he got away. Yeah, and, and there's the thing, too. I think this was actually probably supposed to be deliberate, that the lead terrorist is a white guy, and, uh, and, and we don't know until very late in the comic that that's not Kane, but he works for Kane. Right. Yeah, so... So yeah, a, a bit of a mess, Savage Things number two. But it is really interesting how they're, how they're trying to establish this series and how they're rolling it out. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I think, that's a, I think that's a wrap. We've now done one episode each on Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher, which means that next week it's time to come full circle and come back to Sandman.
Next week, Morpheus heads back into the Dreaming and meets his imperfect hosts. We'll be covering Sandman issues two through four, and we hope to see you there.